Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Welcome, everyone. Here we are today, May 6th, 2020. We're going to have a really great show. We have a wonderful guest, Stephen Howard. He's a very well-known author, and he also is great with leadership and marketing and professional development books. He's also an editor, and we're going to be talking about his latest book, Better Decisions, Better Thinking, Better Outcomes. So come on on, Stephen. Join us. Thank you, Denise. I'm so pleased to be here with you this afternoon. I always start out by asking, how did you get on the path that you're on today? Where did it all start? What inspired you? Well, a couple things, Denise. Um, first, my father suffered some early Alzheimer's disease in his last few years, and I had I'd come back to the United States. I'd been living overseas. I came back to the U.S. to kind of look after him and be his caregiver. And um, I just found that to be such an emotionally devastating and financially devastating experience looking after an elderly parent and then one whose, whose brain was deteriorating. And my father was also an author. He was a fiction author. And uh, he's one of the top mystery writers in, in America, actually. And yet to see this man's brain just kind of... They got answered in the topic uh, also was concerned about my own mental health, uh, wondering whether there was, it was genetic or not. And so I started doing research into Alzheimer's and dementia and how it impacts uh, our brain and how our brain impacts our decision-making. Are you um, in a position uh, that we can get better um, reception? Because you're coming in and out. Am I? Okay. Uh, let me call you. I'm on the landline. Let me call, check, try and call you back from a mobile. Uh, that is your landline, huh? Yeah, that is my landline, yeah. I wonder why it's it's coming in and out. Well, let's try it a few. Let's just mm. try it for a little bit longer and see if it clears up. So okay. we were discussing how um, your father was a writer as well and that he had dementia, and it was emotionally and financially devastating for you. So you started doing a, a lot of research on dementia, and then what happened? Well, then I started talking to business leaders about it and started explaining to them that you know that the uh, Alzheimer's dementia is going to impact their decision making, and they all told me they'll worry about it when they retire. They saw it as an old timer's disease or something that happens only in retirement, and yet my research is showing that really it's our lifestyle, it's what we do in our 30s 
in our 40s that leads to dementia and Alzheimer's disease in our 60s and 70s. And so I started telling leaders that, you know what, this is actually impacting decision-making, so therefore it's impacting your bottom line. And that's when I got their attention. And so I started talking to leaders about this and developing workshops around it and training programs around how to make better decisions uh, so that you're not making decisions when you're stressed and when you're anxious or you're full of uh, concerns. And that all started. Well, you speak about how it really matters what we do in our 40s because it can affect us later on in life um, and become more susceptible to dementia. What are those things? It's, it's, it's all the lifestyle things. Um, the brain is the biggest user of oxygen and blood of all of our organs. Therefore, anything that's good for our heart is good for our brain. So and the opposite, anything that's bad for our heart is bad for our brain. So none, probably the number one thing is obesity. Uh, obesity in midlife, obesity in your 40s or 50s actually accelerates brain age by about 10 years. So if you have a lot of excess body weight in your 40s and 50s, so let's say by the time you get to 60, your brain is effectively a 70-year-old brain. Uh, that's oh. number one. Um, yeah, uh, sugar, soft drinks, diet sodas are all connected with uh, speeding up brain aging. Uh, they're also connected with a smaller overall brain volume, so actually smaller brains, and uh, a shrunken hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that controls thinking and cognitive functions. So all these kind of lifestyle things, these bad habits in our 30s and 40s, is what causes this vital issue in our 60s and 70s. How about medications? In what way, Denise? In, in preventing it or, uh, or um, causing dementia? Causing un- I didn't come across any research to show that medications can cause dementia or Alzheimer. I mean, there okay. might be some side effects of some medicines, um, but there is no medicine that prevents it at this point. Um, oh, I know. And, and that's one of, yeah, one of the issues that we face. Yep, sure is. Well, in the work, another in the work interesting play. thing that you okay. no go ahead mm-hmm. go ahead. I was going to say another yeah no, another interesting uh, fact that your listeners might be interested in, uh, particularly if men who are listening to your program, men who pack the most abdominal fat in their forties are the most likely to develop dementia later in their lives. So it actually increases their risk for dementia, and that's in their forties. Wow, interesting. Huh, didn't know that. Yeah, there's one more too that'll that'll shock you perhaps, and uh, or shock your listeners is that uh, it, people with too much belly fat actually uh-huh. have smaller brains, and and the reason for that is belly fat you know causes inflammation in the body, and it doesn't just cause inflammation in the body; it causes inflammation in the brain, which prevents sufficient oxygen and sufficient blood flow to the brain. So, our brains continue to grow into our 70s. Um, Probably in our 80s and 90s, scientists just don't have enough 70-year-old, 80-year-olds to test. But certainly in our 70s, the neuroscientists know that our brains continue to grow. But people with too much belly fat, their brains do not grow as fast or as large as people who don't have belly fat. Huh. Interesting. I like this. Really yeah. very helpful information. So let's talk about Good. what stress does. Good. 
Well, stress, you know, we are living in highly stressful times, um, highly prolonged stress times. But the American Psychological Association reported before this pandemic, uh, like from 18 months or so, that 50% of Americans are kept awake at night due to stress. And I would argue that that's, that number is certainly higher today during this you know, shelter-in-place, lockdown, whatever people want to call it. Um, the EPA also called Generation X. Now, those are the folks who were born between 1965 and 1979. They've been labeled by the American Psychological Association as the most stressed generation in the United States. And Why? as a result of the... Well, so I think it's a result of the 24-7 lifestyle, the lack of sufficient sleep. Uh, this is the first generation that multitasking oh, is one of the worst things for our brains because it, it's training our brain not to focus. And the lack of focus is one of the early indicators, the early signs of dementia. So now we have an entire generation who's training their brains not to focus on a single thing, to multitask, and that's just causing stress. Um, sadly, sadly, the American Institute of Stress, um, one of the things I say sadly is that we actually have an Institute of Stress. That's how much stress we have in our country. Um, but they say that general stress is far and away a major source of stress for American adults, and it's escalating precariously over the last couple of decades. And if you go back, say, the 1980s, uh, late 80s, early 1990s, the two top causes of stress for adults were financial concerns and family relationship concerns, whether that's house relationships, relationship with children, relationship with in-laws, or even your own parents. Those are the top okay. two stress factors in the 80s and 90s. Today, it's job stress, work stress, which is kind of sad. Well, we don't have that right now. Well, yes, we, in, we actually do in some cases. I mean, people working from home, that's a very stressful environment for people yeah, who aren't true. used to it, and particularly parents who have to home. Yeah, I was just thinking of the 30 million. I was just thinking of the – yeah. yeah. I was just thinking of 30 million people that are out of work right now. Yeah, well, that, uh, that that too, but uh, they're you know being sheltered in place. Unfortunately, I think what come out of this shelter in place is yeah, we're all going to come out of it having too long, too much prolonged stress, and uh-huh. that's going to impact our long term. That's going to impact our long term health. Um, even today, we're already reading articles of increased alcoholism or alcohol abuse. I should say. Uh, during the lockdown, uh, increased binge eating, uh, increased domestic abuse situations, uh, because prolonged stress, um, it impacts the part of the brain that, that controls or uh, allows us our self-control. And so people don't have as much self-control right now into this lockdown because of the stress. So we're, we're in mm-hmm. bad shape right now. Lovely. So what can we do? <laughs> well... Um, be kind to one another and, and look out for one another. Number one. Uh, secondly, there's a lot of a lot of techniques for stress control, um, either in home or in the workplace, that that people need to start making use of and and, and identifying that they're under stress and understand uh-huh. it's okay. We're under stress. Realize it, but then control ourselves. Be, don't get emotionally 
act, allow the, the prefrontal cortex of our brain to take over from the amygdala, which is the emotional control center of our brain. And that's what causes emotional hijackings. Huh? Huh. Well, you know, in your book, you talk about brain myths. What do you mean? Uh, well, well, one was I remember growing up and in, in going to school as a, in high school, and I was taught that uh, our uh, our brain stops growing when we reach about age 25, and that's what the scientists believed back then. But in in the last 15 or 20 years, there's been so much um, MRI technology advancements and to observe the brain and see how the brain's firing when it's operating. And as I said earlier, they know now that the brain continues to grow, what they call neuroplasticity. It continues to grow well into our 70s. Um, that was one myth. Um, the other one I... I, I Well, listeners, I think we've lost him. Hopefully he'll call us back maybe on his cell phone. We really haven't had a very good connection for this interview. So we will wait for him to call us back. Hello. Hello. Yeah, Denise, can you hear me? Can you hear me now, Denise? Um, did you call us back on your cell phone because your home phone's not working? Okay, let me. I'll call you right back. Okay. Hello. Hello, Denise. It's Stephen again. Oh, oh, okay. That's that's so much better. Okay. Very. Sorry about that. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think I was talking about right brain and left brain at the time. Do you want me to pick it up from there? Yes. Would you please? Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm saying some. I I believe that I was taught told also that some of us are left brain, some of us are right brain, and and that's not true either. Um, none of us use only part of our brain. In fact, we all use all of our brain at some point during the course of a day. Um, and for instance, um, when we're like you and I are having a conversation now, the uh, left side of the brain is the part of the brain that processes the the sound, the signals of what the talk that we're hearing. But the right side of the brain puts it into context, and this is how we, the right side helps us understand whether the person's saying something and they're saying in a sad voice or an angry voice or um, you know, emotionally upset voice or something like that. So even when we're in a conversation, we're using both sides of our brain. And, uh, and then the third, the third myth I found, I, you know, I used to think we could go for days without sleep and we'd be okay. And I, I used to live in Asia. I lived in Asia for 21 years. And I would come back across the Pacific Ocean, and, you know, I wouldn't sleep on the plane. I'd be awake for 35, 40 hours, depending on where I was wow. going to. I'd get, a, I'd get a rental car, you know, and I'd drive to my hotel or to my parents' house, wherever I was going. And um, I found out, you know, research a few years ago at UCLA here in California showed that 
when when someone's been awake for 17 hours, so that's just a typical you know course of a day. After 17 mm-hmm. hours, our our brain is functioning as if we have a blood alcohol blood alcohol content of 0.08 effectively. Now here in the U.S., 0.10 is the legal limit for driving, but in places like Europe and Australia, um, it's actually 0.05, and um, so basically, our brain's operating as effectively if we're on the borderline of, of drunk driving. Now, when we've been awake for 24 hours or longer, our brain is now operating at 0.10 effective blood alcohol content, which means we would be legally drunk in, in any country. But you can't measure that. You can only measure the blood alcohol, alcohol content. You can't measure sleepiness. Uh, but this is one of the reasons why... Um, uh, tired drivers uh, is one of the, is the largest cause of driving accidents in the United States because of people having insufficient sleep. So it's a really yeah. impact on our brain. Well, it's interesting because we have uh, physicians in hospitals, particularly interns, and they they just haven't changed the way they they them relative to making sure that they get their rest. And that's, a, and that's a shame. And it's, you know, how many, how many deaths are there from medical mistakes, not from interns necessarily, but even from doctors. I mean, and see what the game was happening right now. All of our, all of our medical professionals, doctors and nurses working double shifts, um, you know, some, are they? I don't know if anyone's, yeah, a lot of them working double shifts and, and uh, same with our ambulance, our EMTs and stuff, you know, particularly in places like, I would guess New York City and here in California, Riverside County, where the where the um, the uh, number of virus cases are quite high. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so a lot of them working double shifts, and they're going to be tired. And when your your brain is tired, it's it's going to make mistakes and it's going to make mm-hmm. bad decisions. Um, um, and that's uh, unfortunate. So, you know, since we're getting into the functioning of the brain and what if, what affects affects it uh, what would you recommend we do to build and maintain the health of our brains well a couple of things number one is is just to learn to pace ourselves i mean it's funny as a as a as a human being or as a, a race of human beings that when we get tired you know, even in the workplace, you get tired and you tell somebody, you know, like, I'm going to go home and take a 20-minute nap or, or something like that. Nobody looks at you like you're weak. But if you tell somebody in the office or in the work environment, you know what, I need a 20-minute mental rest. I'm going to go outside and sit sit at the park. People look like you're crazy. Are you okay? Mm-hmm. Do you have mental health issues? And that's that's a shame because we need to treat our brain the way we treat our body and take, take some uh-huh. mental rest. Um, uh-huh. And when it comes to decision making, I mean, it goes back to what we were just talking about doctors and what have you. Uh, under stress, the brain looks for binary options. The brain wants one or two, A or B, um, black or white. That's not usually the optimal decision. I think that's, and I think even in the medical field, that's why so many um, bad, bad things happen in hospitals when doctors have to choose between one and two because they don't take the time to think about options three, four, five. And, uh, and same thing in the workplace. It happens all the time. Um, I'll give you a little, a little story um, to illustrate that. That'd be I was, great. I was, teach, I was teaching a, a leadership class in Fort Worth, Texas back, I think it was the first week of December last year. And um, there were 28 people registered for the program. 
And usually we only put 24 in the program, but we, we allow the client to, you know, four extra people. It's Christmas. People want to get their training in before the end of the year. Well, something went wrong at the client side. And when I started the class, I had 37 individuals in the classroom. And fortunately enough, the room was big enough and I could handle it. And it, it's difficult. We were going on. And the client called me at lunch because she had heard about it. She, she's down in Houston, and she said, what happened? I said, I don't know. All these people showed up. I only had 28 people on the registration. And she goes, well, send the other nine people home. And it was a four-day program, by the way. She said, send them home. Well, you know, they, they can't attend the class. They're not registered. And she was obviously under a lot of press, uh, sorry, a lot of stress and pressure. And I said to her, I said, wait a second. Before we make that decision, do you realize of those nine people that you're talking about, Three of them flew in from Colorado, two drove down from Oklahoma City, one had driven in from Kansas, uh, I think one had flown up from Baton Rouge. So six of the nine had actually traveled to come to the class. You know, they, you know, it's going to be a four-day program. They, they got a hotel reservation for four days. They've got flights, and you know, when you change a flight, it costs another $250. So by staying calm and getting her to pause and reflect on really what the implication here was, she realized that – a or B was a bad decision, and so she agreed to leave, let him stay in the class for the rest of the week. So, you thank know, goodness. But thank goodness. Yeah, but that, yeah, but if I hadn't if I hadn't hadn't put that out to her, if I just said, okay, I'll do what you say, you would have had nine very angry people who are you know going to be angry at the organization, at the company, at the HR department oh. because I, I don't know what went wrong, but they thought they were all registered, um, but uh-huh. somehow they weren't. And so um, wow. she could have made a bad – she would not have made an optimal decision. And that's really what I'm talking about in, in the book and with and people like yourself is is that if we allow our brain to only look for A or B, one or two, black or white, yes or no, those binary choices, we're not making optimal decisions because mm-hmm. most decisions or many decisions in the workplace or even our personal lives, we need to look for options. We need to explore option C, D, E, F, G, whatever. Then we can make a more optimal decision, and um, and that's what stress causes. That's what stress does to us. Mm. Well, aren't you talking about using critical thinking skills? I think critical thinking is a little bit different in that is how you weigh options. Um, this is more pausing, and, and this is um, really making that decision to pause and not get emotionally hijacked. Um, okay. Here, 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 let me explain a little bit about that. When I when I um, I lived in Asia. I learned to scuba dive, and I was trained to be a rescue diver. And the first thing you're trained as a rescue diver is assess the situation. You have somebody in the water who's yelling, help, help, help. You don't just Mm -hmm. jump in the water. You don't know if there's sharks in the water, if there's a current in the water, if there's gasoline or oil in the water. Um, you know, you don't know. So you have to stop and assess the situation. That's what, that's what our EMTs are trained to do. You know, when they come across a car accident, they assess it. They, you know, they, they stop. They look for smoke. They look for gasoline spills. They look for electrical uh, um, wires or anything on the ground, and then they go help the person because they don't want to put themselves in danger. Well, that's why they're called first responders. And so what I'm trying to – my message to people is we all need to be first responders when it comes to decision makers, not first reactors because we tend to – you know, everything has to happen so fast, particularly in the workplace, and, you know, this 24-7 rush that we're in. And even as parents, we try and make decisions very fast all the time. We need to pause. We need to slow down and respond to situations, respond to people. Don't react to situations. Don't react to people. And so that's, that's ah. a little bit different than the – and then you can do your critical thinking. 
if you can if you can pause and get your brain under control, then you oh, can do your critical you. thinking skills. Yeah. Well, interesting. Hmm. Well, so, let's get a little bit more into your book. Kind of talk about how you know when we have that better thinking, then it it leads to us to make better decisions, like we were discussing, but. Um, how do you still get those the best outcomes possible? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I would suggest that, um, as I just said, if you pause and reflect, make that's your first decision is to get your brain into control, and then ask good questions and and be fully present, and then you'll understand the situation. Um, the, very interestingly, the brain. As soon as, it's, as soon as we introduce a problem to the brain, mm-hmm. it makes a decision at that point of how difficult this decision is going to be. We've all, we've all been in situations where we've said to ourselves, I can't believe I can't make this decision. I can't believe it's so hard. I, I, I can't believe I'm struggling to make this decision. Well, it's because at the time you first heard about the problem or the situation, your brain was so busy, it didn't get all the facts and information, and it made a judgment, man, this is going to be a tough decision. And even later, as we get more information, more data, um, you know, talk to more people about the situation, the brain still considers it to be a difficult decision. And that's why if we, don't, if we aren't present, if we don't slow down, um, stress um, causes our brain not to receive all the information. It, stress causes us to only cherry pick some information. And so, again, that's why we, we can't make optimal decisions. Um, we're, we're at this point where we think it's too difficult, and then we all – we just say, oh, I can't I, – I, why, why is this decision so hard? It shouldn't be this hard. But our brain is stuck in that, that hard mode, so to speak. And um, so that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's the first thing to do is, is to be more present uh, at, the, at the time. Um, and if we start to get emotionally hijacked, to understand – our emotions, and then make a conscious effort to get our brain under control to become more rational. Um, interestingly, the scientists call it an eight-second rule. It basically takes eight seconds for the prefrontal cortex, which is the rational part of the brain, which is towards the front of our brains, to take over from the amygdala. And the amygdala is at the back of our head, and, and, it, and it's the emotional control center. Well, I remember as a child, I used to be taught, Stephen, when you get angry, count to 10. Don't throw things. Don't hit another child. Get, <laughs> to get your anger control, count to 10, right? Well, <laughs> I, thought that was, I thought that was an old wives' tale, but it turns out that there's scientific reason for that. It, counting to eight is roughly, or, or sorry, counting to 10 is roughly eight seconds for most of us. And that's what it <laughs> takes to stop an emotional hijacking. <laughs> so uh, our mothers are right. Our, our school teachers are right. Huh. I never had that. I mean, I was never taught that. Oh, okay. I was. I was uh, pretty prevalent when I grew up, but uh, that was the rule. Count to 10. Don't don't get angry. Count to 10. Wow. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, and there's a scientific reason for that. Hmm. So what else did you learn in, in the process of uh, being a caretaker for your father? Um you know, with his condition. I think, and it took me a long time to, to learn this, Denise. Um, and um, 
And I've talked to a friend of mine who's a nurse, and, and her mother has dementia right now. She, she and I were very mm. close friends growing up in high school, and we talk about it a, a little bit. Both of us, what we've learned is that we have to understand that when our parents are in that Alzheimer's stage or that dementia stage, they're going to say a lot of things, and they're, they're going to say a lot of mean things. And it's not really them talking. And when, when I first – when my father first said some things to me, I mean, they were very hurtful things. Uh, and I thought – I thought my first reaction, I thought, man, these must be his really deep-seated beliefs that he thinks about me. And mm-hmm. everything he's been saying previous to this was, you know, superficial stuff and, you know, stuff just to keep the relationship going. And, you know, I, I, went, to the wrong, I went to the wrong room, so to speak, and I just thought, man, he really, he really thinks poorly about me. But then I realized that it's, it's, just, it's just the brain playing tricks on him, and, and, um, and he wasn't in control of his, his, of his cognitive function. And it wasn't a deep-seated belief. It was just something he said out of, out of anger. Um, perhaps the brain was angry because it realized it was, didn't have the same control it used to have. I don't know. I didn't go into that much of, of the research. Of, I'm, not a, uh-huh. I'm not a neuroscientist. But, but, yeah, I think that's one thing I learned, and I, that's one thing I would tell people to, to really understand the fact that uh, they're going to say things. They're going to hurtful things. And, and also it's very frustrating. I mean my dad, let's see, he was born in 1932, so uh, he was a big boxing fan. If you asked him in his last even, – even his last month, if you asked him who won the heavyweight championship fight in 1948, he would tell you who won, who the other boxer was, and which mm-hmm. stadium it was fought in. But if you asked him what he had for dinner two nights ago, he, could, he couldn't even tell you if he had dinner or not. And so yeah, his long-term memory interesting. was yeah, yeah, long-term, long-term memory. memory was intact, but yes, the short-term yes. wasn't, and yes. the working memory wasn't. And we just can't get frustrated with that. We can't get frustrated with saying, you know, Dad, did you brush your teeth? No, I don't know. I guess I brushed my teeth. We have to just don't let that frustrate us because, you know, it's, it's in many ways it's like taking care of a two-year-old or three-year-old. They, they don't know what they're doing. They don't, they don't remember what they did three days ago. Well, the same thing with at least with my father and his how, Alzheimer's. Um, how, how from the very beginning of his diagnosis, what was his progression in terms of years? Um, he had only what what would be classified as early stage Alzheimer's, and that probably was diagnosed about the last eighteen months of his life. He he had suffered from congestive heart failure. Oh, okay. He had a couple stents put into as well. So again, you know, when, you know the congestive heart failure, having to have stents put in a year later. You know, that okay. it just it was just slowing down the blood flow to his brain. Um, so okay. it, it speeded it up, whatever whatever he yeah, was going through. So it was through. a little different um, than perhaps other other people that suffer from it. Yeah, it, yeah everyone's different. Yeah. That's one of the sad things about that these diseases is is it, it impacts everyone differently, and and um, mm-hmm. you know, there's no no rule book to follow necessarily. No rule book. Um, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. But, um, which makes it difficult. Well, um, it does, especially for the the people who are trying to manage them, you know. It is, and and interestingly, and this is going to be a societal issue. I mean, right now, current estimates um, call for a sixty seven percent increase in dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and stroke by the twenty thirty. So by the end of this decade, there'll be ten million Americans and about seventy six million people worldwide suffering from dementia, Alzheimer's, or stroke. And today, already 10% of adults who are age 60 to 69 are parental caregivers, and 12% of adults 70-plus are parental caregivers. So as 
our parents are living longer, as we're living longer, this is going to impact our children. Um, oh, so this is going to be a geez. huge societal issue, um, you know, within the next uh, eight to ten years, I'd say, if we don't start making some changes. Well, not only that, it it does fall on the families to take care, you know, of a dementia. Um, I don't want to call them patient. You know, it could be a mother, father, or sister, or brother. You know, um, because putting them into any form of assisted living is so expensive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and as I said earlier, I mean, you know, my, my experience was it was financially devastating, but also even more, I think it's just emotion devastating. I mean, as I said, to, to have a parent, you know, lash out at you or say negative things or to have to try and be a parent to a parent, basically, to, you know, to force your parent to, to go to a doctor's appointment, to try and force mm-hmm. your parent to walk. To force your parent yeah. to, to eat, and, and you can't, I mean, you, you can't. Yeah, you know, you don't have the legal grounds to force your parent to do no. anything that they don't want to do. No, no. Uh, it was a struggle for me to get my daddy sometimes one meal a day, much less two. I mean, he just he constantly said, "I'm not hungry. I'm not, I'm not going to eat." You know, push the food away and stuff like that. And you know, as much as you try and. Be rational and say, Dad, you got to eat. Dad, you know, this is good for you. You know, you need mm-hmm. your proteins. You need some vitamins, you know, blah, blah, blah. He, yeah. I'm not hungry. I'll eat when I'm hungry. <laughs> you know, and he knows he's the parent. <laughs> and so, so you really can't, can't you, you know, I'm, I'm sure I, I remember he used, to for, he used to force me to eat my dinners when I was, you know, eight, ten years old. <laughs> but but I couldn't I couldn't reverse role play with them. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I am um, so. from a from a, a personal level I have uh a friend that has dementia and um she doesn't have any family in the US. So I kind of have taken over to help her. Mm. It's really a lot of work. <laughs> it is. Well, good, good for I you just, for doing so. And and it's you know I mean you know interfacing with the doctors and the financial and it, just everything right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's how I came um, back. I mean, uh, I came yeah. back to the U.S. because I found out my dad hadn't paid his American Express card for like four months or something, and, I figured, <laughs> and then and his electricity exactly. bill. So I came. I, I was living in Australia. I said, I'll come back for six weeks and sort it out. And six weeks became six months. Six months became yes. six years and, you know, yeah. whatever sort of thing. But, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it yeah. is, it is quite a ride. And um, I'm only at the beginning with her, you know, I mean, okay. her diagno her diagnosis, she has mixed dementia, which is a lot of it, a lot of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, yeah. at least at least there isn't that mean component at all. So yeah, well, good for you for helping her out. Uh, that's a good credit for you for doing so. Yeah, I'm I'm learning a lot about about the disease. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and people used to think it was strictly genetics, and you know there is a genetic component to it, but it's not just genetic. It's a, a lot of it is lifestyle. It's what we eat. It's our lack of exercise. Um, you know, one, one thing people can do is, you know, 20 minutes walk a day. I mean, people don't need to run marathons or half marathons to, for their brains. Mm-hmm. If everyone would, you know, walk 20 to 30 minutes a day, um, 
you know, that would be that would almost be sufficient to start reducing the risks of dementia, as, as well as uh, getting uh, that's number one, and number two would be getting blood pressure down. So, I mean, so many people in the United States have hypertension or prehypertension, and if people would just get their blood pressure down, not through not through drugs, but through you know losing weight, through exercise, through healthier eating as well as just some exercise, physical activity, we could really slow down that 76% increase that's projected in, in this decade. That's really scary, 76%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even know how our health care uh, system would even be able to support that because it's having a tough I, time now. I don't either, and, uh, and, and I'm a, I hate to be a skeptic, but um, – I did read that um, treating um, Alzheimer's and dementia uh, will be um, a $1 trillion industry by 2030. And the reason I say being a skeptic is that that to me tells me why the drug industry isn't trying to create drugs that help prevent it or you know, promoting a healthier lifestyle because that's a trillion-dollar industry uh, that's going to be split around various pharmaceutical companies in 10 years' time from now or eight years' time from now. Um, oh, my word. So, uh, yeah, so it's, um, you know, it's, um, I can see why people aren't, aren't uh, creating drugs that uh, can figure out how to stop it because they're going to make a whole lot of money just helping people coping with it. Oh, dear me. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to add to uh, to our interview. Well, I, I just I, yeah, I just the comment I tell people. I mean, there's a, a an old Chinese proverb that says um, the best time to plant a tree was a hundred years ago. The second best time is today. Well, the same thing about our brain health. You know, the best time to start working on your brain health is in your 20s. But if you're not in your 20s or 30s anymore, the best time to start is today. So just you know, reduce weight. Focus on getting blood pressure under control, exercise, get up and move around more, um, and, um, you know, get the weight down. And uh, hopefully uh, all your listeners will have a a healthier lifestyle going into the next 10 or 20 years. Oh, that's great. It's really great advice, Stephen Howard. Where can people find your book? Where can people find your book? Better decisions, the better book, thinking, the book better outcomes. Is, uh, better decisions, better thinking, better outcomes. It's on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle versions, and um, that's that's the that's the best place to go for it. And um, yeah, I hope people enjoy it. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of techniques in the book about mindful techniques, techniques to reduce stress in the workplace, some breathing, some basic breathing practices in there. Uh, as well as you know some of the statistics and stuff that we've been talking about, but um, yeah, read the book. It's a it's a pretty good um, I don't know, a pretty good guide to having a healthier brain, um, having healthier long term uh, a brain uh, as you as one ages. Well, again, thank you so much, and um, continue your wonderful work and your research. I'm sure you will continue that as well. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you this afternoon. You too. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that wraps up our program for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate all our listeners. We hope that you that we impart some really great information to further your knowledge about specific 
um, things that we as humans run across in our <laughs> in our lives. Anyway, until next time, next Wednesday, please be well. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? <laughs>